Okay, we stopped. We stopped with right livelihood. And are there any more questions on that topic before we move on? I have a question about um, business and weapons mm -hmm. and uh, what the implications are uh, for us in terms of what if our portfolio includes some kind of defense um, investments or how, 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 how are we to handle that? I personally would try to disinvest because you're making money off of somebody who's trying to kill. Is the right livelihood after retirement? <laughs> <laughs> Is there wrong livelihood after retirement? <laughs> don't know. So what, what, what specific problems do you have? I don't think I have problems. Um, it seems important to do something that's useful or uses some of your better traits and capabilities mm -hmm. and not just, you know. Not just meditate. <laughs> okay. I mean, you can still practice generosity, which means you know sharing your talents, sharing your abilities, without having to make money off of it. So that doesn't really come under right livelihood. It comes under the practice of generosity, making sure that you have that as part of your portfolio. Because I, mean, you know, I talked earlier about the problem they have in Thailand. People, a lot of people just want to be generous with the idea that, okay, I get to be rich next time around, I get to be powerful next time around. Here in the West, we have the opposite problem. People just say, well, to practice is to meditate. And they forget about the virtue and the generosity issues. Because the generosity, as I said earlier, does open you to the fact that, hey, I've got something to share, and I've got the freedom of choice to share it. And that by being generous, I'm going to be changing the world, my immediate world around me, and perhaps rippling out further. Those are all good lessons. And then also the sense of you know, self-esteem that comes with generosity, the sense of self-esteem that comes with practicing, observing the precepts. That also gives more honesty to your concentration. Question? You, rec you mentioned... Uh Bad something can lead to bad concentration. How do you? How can you tell when concentration is bad? Okay, basically, not observing the precepts can lead to a state of mind which has lots of denial. You know that the harm you do to other people you don't admit to yourself, or it can lead to a lot of remorse when you do admit to the harm but realize I'm kind of, you know I'm a horrible person because I did this sort of thing. The quality of concentration that can be developed on 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 that foundation is usually not very good. Either, got, either it's hard to get into concentration or it requires this very compartmentalized mind that just blocks things off. That's, that's a criticism that the anti-jhana folks sometimes use, is that it's uh, uh, denial. Do you use it in your works? Den denial uh, concentration where you're running from a Denial. They use the word denial. Okay. Well, there's. I mean, there's jhana and there's jhana. We'll get into that yeah. later on. Probably jhana light. Well, no, no. Um, the kind of jhana where you're just focused totally on one point and you block out everything else in your awareness. That's not the right concentration described in the canon. That's a, That's a debate. Yes, but I'm, I'm taking a position on the debate. 
because when the Buddha talks about spreading ease and rapture throughout the whole body, you can't do that if you're just focused on one point, to the exclusion of everything else. I know the arguments. Yeah, 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 okay. Okay, anything else? Okay, right effort. Okay, we've got an hour and five minutes to cover three uh, factors of the path. So I'm going to try to be as thorough but as yet clear as possible. Okay, with right effort, the description is four types of right effort. You generate desire, you uh, activate persistence, and you uphold your intent for preventing unskillful qualities from arising, for abandoning the unskillful qualities that have already, already arisen, to give rise to skillful qualities that have not yet arisen, and to basically further develop skillful qualities that have arisen. There are three roles in which discernment gets applied here. The first one is that generating desire. As the Buddha said, one of, your, one of the signs of your discernment is your ability to talk yourself into doing something that you don't like to do, but you know is going to be good in the long term. Very practical definition of discernment. You don't need to know anything about emptiness to do that. You don't need to know anything about all the dependent core rising. You need to know how to figure out, figure out your own psychology. How do I talk myself into doing something I don't like doing, even though I know long down, down the road it's going to be good, it's going to be profitable. Similarly, if something that you like to do, but you know is going to have long-term bad consequences, how do you talk yourself out of doing it? So that's one of the signs of discernment, is your ability to get yourself to do things you don't like to do but will be good, and not to do things that you like to do that you know are going to be bad. And the Buddha talks about various ways of motivating yourself. I'll give you a few examples that are found in the canon. Number one is heedfulness. It's the ability to realize, okay, my, import, my actions are important, the choices I make will have an important impact. And so I've got to be careful about how I act. Related to this is the question, do you really love yourself? You got involved in this practice because you wanted to put an end to suffering. If you, you, know, if you take a few days off and say, I'm, I'm just going ahead and go ahead and do unskillful things, or maybe give up entirely. Okay, this, you know, what, what concern are you showing for yourself? Now this, this actually does involve a sense of self, but it's a healthy use of the sense of self. It creates, creates heedfulness. Another mo- way of motivating for yourself is compassion, either, for, again, for yourself or for others. There's an interesting passage where the Buddha reminds the monks that you know, the more you practice, and the higher you get in your attainments, then the more benefit will come to the people who give you gifts. And so this is one way of saying, I'd like to see those people get lots of benefits from helping me, so I should practice more. In Thailand, I had the experience every now and then, actually quite often, of being the beneficiary of a poor person's generosity. There was this one young couple in particular, I remember, they had a little house that was just big enough for the two of them to lie in. And then they had a little kitchen out back, which was just a little charcoal stove and a few cabinets. And almost every morning they were out there with either a piece of sausage or a piece of dried fish or something. And so I'd come back from my alms run and say, "Well, you really got to meditate well today. You're the beneficiary of their, their generosity. So compassion for the people who help you. Is that they, they will benefit more the more you practice. 
a sense of shame. And John Fu used to say, you know, when I, if you start thinking unskillful thoughts, run your hand over your head, remind yourself, hey, I'm a monk. You know? <laughs> Monks should be thinking this. For lay people, you say, hey, I'm a meditator. This is how a meditator thinks. This is how a meditator acts. And so shame here is not meant to debilitate you. It's actually, it's, it's, it's the, actually the obverse side of pride. The sense of self-esteem that comes, I've got this skill that I'm working on, I want to do it well. And I would be ashamed to stoop to something beneath the, the ideals that I've set up for myself. And finally, another way of motivating yourself is to think of the noble example of others. Um, this is one of the reasons why we have the biographies of the Great Johns, to remind ourselves that there are people out there who really put their lives on the line in much more dangerous situations than we did. They were able to make that sacrifice. Why can't I make the sacrifice of sitting an extra ten minutes? So whatever way you find actually gets you, gets you motivated to do the practice, that's one of the ways in which discernment gets involved in the practice of right effort. Another way that discernment gets involved is to figure out what type of effort is needed right now, i.e., am I faced with something I should develop, or am I faced with something that I should bear with, or am I faced with something I shouldn't bear with? Um, for example, the Buddha says you should learn to bear with hurtful words and painful feelings. This is something you have to learn how to put up with, because you're going to meet them in the world, and no matter how much you try to avoid them, they're going to come. So you have to learn how to say, okay, I can be okay when someone is yelling at me. I don't have to take it in. However, this is the Buddha says you do not bear with unskillful thoughts. You know, something arises in the mind that's unskillful. He says you actively try to diffuse it, you actively try to figure out some way around it. So you don't just sit there and say, oh, I, I can sit there with a thought of lust and just kind of let it be there. It's going to eat you up if you're not careful. So you have to figure out what's the type of effort that's required. In some cases it's an abandoning, in some cases it's just a developing. As we said earlier, sometimes it's preventing. If you know you're going to go into a difficult situation, you have to stop and think, how can I avoid unskillful you know, an unskillful interaction here, and sort of strategize. And then finally, there's the amount of effort and this that you put in at any one time. And this will depend on two things. One, what is the issue itself? And two, what is your own level of energy right now? In terms of the issue, the, the Buddha says, you know, there are some causes of suffering that will go away simply when you look at them with equanimity. And this is what the Vipassana community thrives on. In other words, there are things that will actually go away. All you have to do is just note them and they go. That's it. Other things in the mind, though, however, however much you look at them, they just stare right back at you. And they're not going to go away unless, as the Buddha said, you exert a fabrication against them. And here we get into the three kinds of fabrication. How are you breathing? What are you telling yourself about the issue right now? What's unskillful about the way you're talking to yourself about this issue? And what perceptions are you holding in mind? What feelings are you holding on to that are, that are nourishing this unskillful thought? So, that, in that case, the, the amount of effort is based on the issue. Second, the amount of effort based on your own level of energy. You know, it's at the end of a long day, you've been tired, it's been, you know, you've been putting up with a lot. You do not sit down and say, I will not get up until I reach, you know, reach supreme, unexcelled awakening. <laughs> you say, I will sit here for the hour. <laughs> and do my best. You don't place um, impossible demands on yourself. 
So those are the three areas in which discernment gets applied to right effort. In other words, learning how to motivate yourself to do the right thing. Two, figuring out what type of effort is involved. And then three, figuring out what is the amount of effort that is called for by the issue and that you have at your disposal. Now the discernment that's gained from this is basically comes down, down to that theme I had mentioned at the very beginning, is you gain an understanding of cause and effect in how you don't have to get sucked into a particular mind state that's present. You can actually take it apart and create something else in its place. And you begin to see the, the various issues that are involved in doing that. In other words, you see, okay, motivation is going to be one of the things you've got to work on. And then the understanding of what are the particular strategies that will work with this particular case of lust, or this particular case of anger, or this particular case of greed. So any questions on right effort? I gave you the encapsulated version. <laughs> yes? What was the first thing you said under motivation? I missed it. Okay, the question is, what was the first thing I said under motivation? And the first thing I said was one, maybe the type of motivation. Okay, heedfulness. Did you have heedfulness down? Heedfulness. Mm -hmm. Heedfulness. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting uh, book called The Wisdom of the Ego by George Valiant. He's a Harvard psychologist, and he was pointing out that there are aspects of the ego that are actually healthy. And one of them, like he points out, is um, anticipation, seeing that there's danger down the line that you have to prepare for it. And if you don't have a healthy sense of ego, you will not prepare for future dangers. Well, the Buddhist term for that anticipation is heedfulness, the realization that my actions are going to make a difference, and so I better act well. So there is a sense of self there involved, but it's a healthy sense of self. The other factors he said of a healthy ego are um, altruism, the realization that your happiness cannot depend on other people's suffering, if you want it to last. And in Buddhism, we call that compassion. Suppression, in other words, saying no to yourself when you know that you're inclined in an unskillful direction. In Buddhism, we call that restraint. Um, sublimation, and Buddhism doesn't have a term for sublimation, but it's basically finding an alternative form of pleasure that's not as unskillful as the one you may be inclined to. And, and here, of course, the ideal example is um, practicing concentration. And then finally, um, humor. That's an healthy ego function, when your ability to laugh good-naturedly at yourself. The Buddha doesn't talk about this that much, but there are lots of instances of humor in the canon. I'll give you one. There was a monk who had psychic powers, and he did battle one day with a, a, a fire-breathing serpent and tamed it. And word gets out, and the lay people want to make merit with this monk. And so they go and they ask the monks, what's something that monks don't normally get? And they asked the wrong monks. And this group of monks says, we don't normally get hard liquor. <laughs> so the next day, everybody in the village, or everybody in the city, has a glass of hard liquor for this monk. And of course, he takes all the hard liquor and he passes out as he leaves the city gates. And so the Buddha comes along with the other monks, they see him, and the Buddha says, okay, take him back to the monastery. So they carry him back to the monastery. They place him down on the ground with his head toward the Buddha. And as he's lying there, he doesn't realize where he is, and he starts tossing and turning and tossing and turning, finally has his feet straight at the Buddha. And the Buddha says, in the past, wasn't he deferential and respectful to the Tathagata? 
He said, yes. Is he deferential and respectful now? No. And in the past, didn't he do battle with the fire-breathing serpent? Yes. Can he do battle with a salamander now? No. <laughs> so, so, that's more healthy ego functions. Any other questions on right effort? Uh, you started mentioning that there were times where, for example, if you're going through painful emotions, you should bear them. Other consider or like other situations where there are things that instead of bearing them, you should find another object to focus on. Um, is there a comprehensive list somewhere on those? Sorry, it's one of those things that you have to see through your own experience. But um, with painful feelings, I mean, if you've got a disease and the, and the medicine is, is handy, take the medicine. If there's no medicine, you say, okay, I've got to learn how to deal with this. And the same with hurtful words. Sometimes you can get someone to stop saying them, other times they're just going to keep saying them. You say, okay, I can, I can bear with this. And one of the best ways of developing patience and endurance this way is to figure out, even in bad situations, there's something positive that I could focus on right now. This is one of the reasons why it's good to have the breath as, a, as something you can rely on. Just, you're sitting in a boring meeting and say, okay, I can focus on my breath and bliss out. <laughs> and nobody has to know. <laughs> That was quick. Okay, right mindfulness. <laughs> okay, there's a lot of misunderstandings about right mindfulness. Largely based on seeing the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, which is the main long sutta on the topic of mindfulness, as a complete description of mindfulness practice. Because there are passages in that sutta that you can read that simply it seems, sounds like you know that when something is there and you don't react, you don't do anything at all. However, the, you have to look at the way the sutta is, is organized, and the way it's organized, it's telling you, it's not explaining all of mindfulness, it's explaining only one part of the, the formula. Remember the basic formula is this, that you remain focused, for example, on the body in and of itself, ardent, alert, mindful, putting aside greed and stress with reference to the world. And it goes down through the four foundations, or the four, four frames of reference for that. But then it goes on and starts asking questions about the formula, but it doesn't ask questions about the whole formula. And this is the, way, the Buddha's way of saying, I'm not explaining the whole topic. Because each case it's, what does it mean to remain focused on X? What does it mean to remain focused on the body? What does it mean to remain focused on feelings? What does it mean to remain focused on mind? What does it mean to remain focused on mental qualities? But the whole rest of the formula gets unexplained. What does it mean to be ardent? What does it mean to be alert? What does it mean to put aside greed and distress with reference to the world? How do you find mindfulness? None of those issues are, are discussed in the sutta. There's another place where the Buddha says that if he, if he were asked questions about mindfulness for a hundred years, he would never have to repeat himself. Now, if mindfulness were simply being non-reactive and allowing, it wouldn't take a hundred years to explain it. But what he's saying here, basically, the way he organizes the sutta is that if you want to understand the role of ardency, if you want to understand these other things, you have to look elsewhere in his teachings. For example, with the description of states of mind. He talks about constricted states of mind, he talks about scattered states of mind. We are looking under his discussion of how you deal with the hindrances, there are discussions of what to do with those states of mind. 
in particular when he talks about being mindful of the Four Noble Truths, remember each of the truths carries a duty. You don't just sit and look at suffering, you don't just sit and look at the path. You try to comprehend the suffering, you try to develop the path. And so on down the line. So you realize that what he's doing you is giving you a framework to hold in mind so that when, say, sensual desire arises, you can ask yourself, what is this? In terms of the Four Noble Truths, what category does it fall under? It falls under the hindrances. The hindrances are causes of suffering. This is something to be abandoned. And then you bring in your knowledge of how to abandon it. So it's kind of giving you the framework for how to analyze things. I mean, how many times when sensual desire arises in you, do you say to yourself, ah, yes, this is a hindrance and therefore it must be abandoned? It's usually not your first thought. <laughs> the same with ill will, the same with sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor comes along and says, ah, it's a sign that I'm tired, I need to rest. Instead of saying, ah, oh, this is a hindrance that I should try to overcome. Right? So what he's giving you is a framework for figuring out what is the correct application of right effort here. Because the word ardency here basically means right effort. If you notice in the readings where he defines ardency. How is one ardent? There's a case where you're thinking unskillful evil arisen, unskillful, unarisen evil, unskillful qualities arising in me would lead to what is unbeneficial, so you arouse ardency. Arisen evil, unskillful qualities not being abandoned in me, and so on down the line. Okay, you're trying, you remind yourself, this is the duty with regard to right, right effort. So basically he's giving you something to keep in mind, a framework to keep in mind, so that you realize, okay, what is the right effort right now? And then you carry that through. That's what it means to be ardent. This is carried out also by the analogies that the Buddha often gives for mindfulness. One of them is as a gatekeeper. He says you have a wise, intelligent gatekeeper at the fortress that's on the frontier, and he knows who to let in and who not to let in. In the same way, your mindfulness knows, remembers to develop skillful qualities and to abandon unskillful qualities. So the gatekeeper doesn't just sit there and watch people coming in and out of the fortress. He actually has to stop certain people. I heard one, someone give an explanation of this. I'm teaching mindfulness as simply accepting, allowing awareness. Saying, actually, the gatekeeper sitting there doesn't have to do anything. All he has to do is just be there, and people see him, and they will, and the unskillful people will not go in. How effective do you think that would be? Do you have mannequin policemen up here in Southern, Northern California? Where they park a car by the road and put a mannequin in? How effective is that? The first time it's effective. <laughs> and then as you drive past, you realize, that's a mannequin. And then you just drive past. It's the same sort of thing. The gatekeeper has to be watchful about who to keep out. Another analogy the Buddha gives is of a goad. You know what a goad is? It's a point on the end of a long stick. And you've got your water buffalo plowing the field, and the water buffalo is going off to the right, so you poke it. It goes off to the left, and you poke it. So mindfulness has to say, you don't just do whatever. You've got to keep on, keep on the path. And so that's the duty of mindfulness, to remind yourself, okay, what is the skillful thing to be doing right now? We also had that passage um, 
when it talks about mindfulness as a governing principle. It says, I will make complete any training with regard to good contact that is not yet complete, or protect with discernment any training with regard to good contact that is complete, as well established right within. In other words, if you see something that is unskillful, you put an end to it. If you see something that is skillful, you give rise to it, try to maintain it. It's not just letting things arise and pass on their own. You have to play an active role. So, taking mindfulness practice in its whole, you're defining mindfulness as the ability to keep things in mind. Uh, the four parts of the formula are informed by right view in these ways. Remaining focused on, say, the body in and of itself or feelings in and of themselves. Mindfulness provides, this provides the framework for identifying what's happening so you apply the right duties. For example, as you're going through the day, a good framework to keep in mind is the six senses. And realize, okay, there's a fetter, i.e. passion or clinging that can arise at the senses and you want to watch for it. And if you see it arising, what can you do to put an end to it? If when you're sitting and meditating and you see that good qualities are arising, okay, what do you do to encourage them, to maintain them? So it gives you the framework for figuring out what to do. Mindfulness is then what keeps the duties of right effort and the Four Noble Truths in mind once you've recognized what's happening. Alertness, you're not simply alert to the present moment as a whole, you're alert to what you're doing. You're focusing on the right part of the present moment. What am I putting, what am I putting into the present moment right now? And what are the results? So it's not just kind of an all-around awareness of everything. You have to be focused on what you're doing. The Buddha gives an example of the person whose head is on fire. And he says, you arouse relentless mindfulness, alertness, determination to put out the fire. Now the role of mindfulness there is to remind you, what's the best way to put out the fire? And also remind you, if I don't put out this fire right now, there's going to be trouble. You don't just sit there and watch the flames. You actually get to work on doing what's needed to be done. In this case, you have to watch out, what am I doing right now? And finally, ardency is the realization that the Four Noble Truths are being aimed at being put into practice. In other words, you don't just know about suffering, but you realize, okay, I, I have, there's actually suffering right here, right now. I've got to do something to comprehend it. There's the cause of suffering in here. I've got to identify it and abandon it, and so forth with the others. Now, there are three stages in the establishing of mindfulness. The Buddha calls it establishing and the development of the establishing. And then there's another stage, which he doesn't name, but we can call it non-fashioning. Okay. The, the, the establishing of mindfulness is simply that basic formula. You're trying to establish a frame of reference, being ardent, alert, and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. The development of establishing is when you start being aware of the procedure or the processes of origination and passing away with reference to that frame of reference. For example, a body, so you're focused on the breath in and of itself, an unskillful state of mind comes up, one of the first things you can ask yourself is, how does that relate to my breath? Is my breath encouraging the unskillful state? Can I breathe in a way that discourages the unskillful state? And you do this, as you're doing this, you get more and more sense of cause and effect. How can I you know, bypass an unskillful state? How can I develop a skillful one in its place? And you do that, as the Buddha says, by mastering all eight factors of the path, including right concentration. 
as we said earlier, there is a belief out there that mindfulness practice is one thing and jhana practice is something else. But again, and that mindfulness is broad, open, accepting, whereas jhana is narrow and exclusionary. Um, in the canon, concentration is described as a full-body awareness. Mindfulness is defined as a fact of memory. And it has to be focused on a particular framework. Um, there's the analogy of the, the quail. The quail stays focused on staying in its ancestral territory and nobody can get it. As soon as the one is out of its territory, the hawk can catch it. So there's a, there's a certain restriction as you place when you keep the mind mindful. But you learn about the process of origination with regard to your frame of reference by actually trying to put the mind into as skillful a state as possible. And that's where you learn what works, what doesn't work in getting the mind into concentration. It's only when you get to the last stage where you're simply you know, aware of, say, there is a body for the sake of recollection and being not, not clinging to anything in the world. That's when you're in that stage of, you know, ready for the last stage of right view, where you're learning, letting go of everything. Up to that point, though, you have to remember the duties of the Four Noble Truths, that you've got to develop your concentration, you've got to develop all the other skillful factors of the path. And this is all part of mindfulness practice. In terms of the discernment you gain from this practice, again, you have hands-on knowledge of cause and effect through the development of the establishment of mindfulness. The Buddha gives an analogy of, of a cook who notices what his boss likes. He doesn't ask the boss, hey, what kind of food do you want today? Especially if he's working for a king. You don't ask the king, you have to anticipate the king's needs. Um, there's a passage in King Ashoka's edicts, where he says, if, my work, if the people who work for me want to satisfy me with how well they're governing the land, they need to know what I want before I know. That's a king. And so if you're a cook working for a king, you have to figure out what does the king want, even before the king knows. That means you just have to watch the king very carefully. What kind of food does he reach for? What kind of food does he praise? And then the next day you provide more of that. And the same way with your mind. You see, what kind of things work with my mind to get them to settle down? Okay, use that as your topic. What things don't work? Okay, you avoid those. And that way you learn more and more about your mind as you try to create skillful states within the mind, leading up to right concentration. Any questions on mindfulness? Ooh, lots of questions. I did ask for questions, yes. <laughs> but you can ask questions on right effort now if you want. Okay. It comes under ardency. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you could explain the difference between fostering more productive states of mind and sort of um, not suppressing, but not encouraging uh, negative states of mind or unhelpful uh, versus uh, attachment and aversion. Okay, it's you have to get to the point where you're looking at this in kind of a matter-of-fact kind of way. In the beginning, there's going to be some attachment, there's going to be some aversion. 
but as you get better at it, you begin more more effective at thinking, oh, this is what's needed here, and just do what's needed without having to get involved in aversion or attachment. Because you know that down the line, this is, these are going to have these consequences, so I have to be careful. And again, it's, it's as with all factors of the path, you're developing skill. So you can't say, well, I'm going to be fully skillful about this when I start. There will have to be, in the beginning, there is some aversion, there is some attachment. But you're, you're, at least you're attached to something good, and you're averse to something bad. That's getting you getting you started. But then after a while you begin to realize, oh, this, oh, this, uh, this attachment, this aversion, they're actually getting in the way, and then you can get, kind of hone your ability in to be more skillful. Mm-hmm. From a Buddhist perspective, this just flew into my mind. Um, and it was something you said, you have to act now. And so something that arises and it's in, in the, when you're out in the world, when a, um, a parent most likely is, for all, from my perspective, is terribly verbally abusing a small child. Mm-hmm. So verbal, so um, every, every part of me wants to, to find some way to help that or to you know, encourage that person through some action that I can do. Mm-hmm. Um, I did it once. You know, I, I told them how beautiful the little child was right afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, but I felt so compelled to do something because it's, it's just so painful to see that and it's so, it's so rampant. You know, it's painful to see, but if you start interfering with the, the, the parent as they're disciplining their child, it's going to be bad for the child. And, I, and so, so that's, the, that's the Buddhist perspective. So the Buddhist perspective is, can you change the topic? Well, these, the, these are not people that I know. Right. It's mm-hmm. just something you see. No, but it's, you, know, you come up to someone immediately and say, you know, can, you teach, can you show me what the, where the diapers are? Mm. Or something. Mm. To, mm. Or... Just sort of initiate some 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 kind of discussion, it, not 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 make any kind of uh, yeah. Right. I can see that. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mental qualities, mm-hmm. um, which I assume is how you're translating Dhamma's. Dharma with a small d. Um, I'm often confused as to what the instructions are in the Satipatthana Sutta because um, I've heard them interpreted as uh, one should observe phenomena that are arising and passing uh, in the mind. Uh, I've heard one should observe uh, mental qualities and uh, apply the various factors that are listed in the Sutta, such as the hindrances and um, the Four Noble Truths, etc. And I've heard one should simply contemplate the hindrances in the Four Noble Truths without paying attention to the what, duties, it, the, what yeah. is arising in the moment. Mm-hmm. So what is the, how should we understand the fourth establishment? Okay, I'll give you another interpretation. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Which is that, as I said, this is the framework to be kept in mind. Remember that mindfulness means remembering. And then you're going to be alert. You have to be alert to what's actually going on right now. And ardent, you have to figure out, okay, what's the skillful thing to do right now? 
based on what you've remembered and what you're seeing that you're doing. So basically you've got five different frameworks which will be applicable in different situations. You know, as you go through daily life, the six sense media are probably the most useful because that gets you into restraint of the senses. And you notice he's not just saying, oh, there is an eye and there is a form, but also you're there to see when a fetter arises based on the eye and the form. And then you figure out, okay, and how do you not encourage that? How do you let go of it when it's arisen? And how do you make sure that it doesn't come back again? Now, it's not go- that's not going to happen simply by watching it. You have to figure out, okay, how can I stop this? And then as you get more and more effective at stopping it, then you get better and better. And finally, at the point, it's not going to rise anymore. So the mindfulness area keeps this framework in mind. And then it's the alertness that's looking at what's happening and the ardency that we've got it. And mindfulness gives instructions, basically, to your ardency. This is what we've got to do. When you're practicing concentration, then the five hindrances and the seven factors awaken and become irrelevant relevant frameworks as to what hindrances is what should be abandoned, the factors for awakening, what should be developed. And in this case, it's, it's like with the hindrances, you don't just watch the hindrances come and go, but you watch once it's arisen, how can it be brought to an end? With the factors for awakening, once it's arisen, how can it be developed? So even there in the sutta, it's, it's beginning to tell you a little bit about it, but the duty of ardency. Yeah. With the five the five clinging aggregates. Okay, remember what's what's the duty with regard to that and the four noble truths? It's to comprehend it. So it says, you know, what is what is form, what is form, what is its origination? And the origination here basically what's the desire that's based on that on which that experience of that aggregate is is, is found. So there's there are implicit duties. And what they're doing is they're giving a framework. So on the, on the one hand, it could, you could say, you could write, translate Dhamma as teachings, frameworks to be kept in mind as you're approaching daily life. But you're also looking at the mental qualities that are being encouraged, or, or that you should be encouraged or should be discouraged as they arise. Is that analogous to the, the third one of cheetahs? The um, cheetahs, I mean, that's... <clears throat> well, that, the, the analogy would be, is the analogy, cheetahs as whole mental states that you give labels to. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the fourth one as the chattasikas, as the little things that make up those... That's uh, one way of looking at the relationship. That's Dhamma, yeah. kind of a... Mm-hmm. Is that a valid that's, way of looking at the satyavatana? That's one way of looking at it. In fact, that's close to the way I would recommend, which is that the jitta is basically... If you think of the mind as a committee, yeah. the state of the mind, the jitta, is basically the whole committee has agreed, we're going to go for this lust, or we're going to go for this anger, or we're going to go for non-lust, we're going to go for non-anger. As in the Dhamma, so the individual committee members... Take it really deconstructing. The deconstruct. Okay, you know, who, you know, who are the yeah. ringleaders in here? Let's work okay, with them. Because again, with the states of mind, you know, there are duties with regards to a passionate state of mind. There are duties with regard to a non-passionate state of mind. The first one should be abandoned. The second one should be developed. And you look at the list under the chittas, and it kind of goes, it starts out with kind of general states of mind, and then it starts going through the states of mind you're going to encounter as you're trying to get the mind concentrated. And they'll be the ones that you have to abandon, they'll be the ones that you have to encourage. Question over here?
So I may need some clarification on this cook mm-hmm. metaphor because I don't see the same thing in my mind. I see the cook being um, very alert and um, productive, feeding the king everything he's asking for. Mm-hmm. 20 years down the line, he's terribly overweight with heart disease, maybe suffering a heart attack, diabetes, and saying... You're taking you, the analogy too far. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, what, what I'm seeing is that the king needs to be open to the cook and a discussion of what might be healthy at this time. And so where is, what okay. is the guidance in the mind uh, where right you think view. you know... Right view. The noble truths, yeah. or the... Mm-hmm. the Three stages. Yeah, what really should be done here? Because I'm t- and basically to get the mind into concentration, you do have to play along with it for a while. What do you like? Okay. Because if you, if you find an object of concentration you don't like, it's going to be a battle. You've got to find an object of concentration that the mind can get engaged with, that it finds interesting, that it finds enjoyable. That aren't externals. That aren't external. So we're doing right concentration here. Which means that you don't just give the mind whatever it wants, but you say, what will bring the mind to concentration? So you provide it with that. Which requires that you be very observant. So you can use, like, Brahma Viharas and externals. Mm-hmm. That's an acceptable. Mm-hmm. Well, That's why you have the contemplation of the Buddha, recollection of the right. Buddha, recollection of the Dharma. Recollection of the Sangha, recollection of your own generosity, recollection of your own virtue, in, in order to provide, provide the right type of mind state that you need right now. So they're using external objects for skillful means. Right. And That's then, perfectly Okay, once acceptable. it's done that, then you can settle back down with the breath. Okay. Ajahn, I have uh, two, two areas of questions for you. One is regarding something that you just seem to have gone through a little quickly and I didn't have the time to note it down properly. Um, I think you said that there are three or four stages, I don't remember how many, but three or four stages for uh, mindfulness, mindfulness right. first is establishing, establishing then developing, developing the uh-huh. and then non-fashioning. Well, that's three stages. That's the then. third stage, yeah. Okay, so what, where does uh, attending to the origination and cessation Second. come Okay, that's in the second one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so essentially one is trying to play with the different m- mental factors at that point. Okay, okay, that's one. So then sec- second type of question I had was uh, related to, uh, this is one frame of, uh, frame, or rather one framework in which I, I understand meditation. There's another place where I find um, the guardian meditation is mentioned. Mm-hmm. So, uh, are they even related uh, uh, with these? Because there, there, there seems to be some sort of overlap. Okay, the guardian meditations are basically designed to figure out if your mind is heading off in the wrong direction, this is what you use to bring it back. Because sometimes staying with the breath, say, or staying with any of these four frames of reference, the mind is just not going to stay down. Stay down. And so you have to figure out what does the mind need? Would it be good to do some goodwill meditation? Would it be good to recollect the virtues of the Buddha? Is this a time to start thinking about analyzing the body? Is it start thinking about 
to, to induce heedfulness, to maybe try to think about death for a while. Right. So essentially, this is like the staple food that the cook would give to the king, right. uh, mm-hmm. and other factors around other it. Other factors, okay. You know, there's you know, there's some foods are medicinal. You know, the king, the king on a staple diet is not going to do well. But maybe you give the, the king this kind of medicinal stuff that gets him back into balanced health. Then you get him back on his regular diet. Okay, gang. Right concentration, we're done. Except for the <laughs> conclusion. Okay, right concentration is defined as the four jhanas. And one of the big issues in jhana practice is sometimes right concentration is also defined as egakata. Um, the word is sometimes translated as one-pointedness. Taking ega, which means one, and aga as point. And the question is, how pointy does it have to be? (laughs) And it turns out that aga has many meanings besides point. One of its primary meanings is actually the topmost part of something, which can either be a point or like the the aga of the roof would be a line. The aga of a mountain is the general summit of the mountain. But the word aga also means gathering place. Like the place where the monks would gather for their meals was called a food aga. The place where they would gather for the abhositta is the abhositta aga. And the question is, if the, when the mind is in jhana, is it so pointed that you are not able to think or to hear sounds or to sense the whole body? Now, given that the analogies for the jhana have to describe a full body awareness, um, it's good to see and think, okay, maybe there's another possibility. It's not just one point. And this passage which describes the, the um, adjective egaga in a non-concentration um, environment. And it's on the bottom of page 11. When you're listening to Dharma talk, endowed with five qualities when listening to the true Dharma, one is capable of alighting on the orderliness and the rightness of skillful qualities, which five one doesn't hold the talk in contempt, one doesn't hold the speaker in contempt, one doesn't hold oneself in contempt. One listens to the Dharma with an unscattered mind, with a mind gathered into one, ekakajeta, and one attends appropriately. So we have the mind gathered into one on the topic of the talk, but is also, so it can hear the talk, it can also think about the talk, and it attends appropriately. That means you're asking the right questions about the talk, i.e., how does this apply to me? How does this apply to the problem of putting an end to suffering? So, which suggests that the word ekaka does not have to mean just one little tiny point, but it means that you're focused on one topic, still able to think about that topic, and you're still able to hear sounds. So jhana doesn't necessarily have to put you in a state where you cannot hear sounds. The description of right concentration is on, follows on page 12. I don't really have enough, enough time to go through all the, all the discussions. You start out with a state where you are secluded from sensuality, secluded from unskillful qualities. You enter remain in the first jhana, rapture and pleasure, born of seclusion, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. And then you permeate and pervade, suffuse and fill this very body with a rapture and pleasure born of, con- of seclusion. 
There's nothing in this entire body that is unpervaded by rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. Okay, in this first part, you notice there's direct a thought and evaluation. This is one of the ways in which discernment is applied to your concentration. You've got to think, how, is my mind settling down properly? If it's not settling down properly, what can I do to get it more and more solid? You're actually at this point talking to yourself about what needs to be done to make the concentration object better, to give it, put a better fit between the object and the mind. And then as you get more successful at that, then you can let go of the directed thought and evaluation. With the stilling of directed thoughts and evaluations, you enter and remain in the second jhana, rapture and pleasure born of concentration. Unification of awareness, free from directed thought and evaluation, internal assurance. Again, you permeate and pervade, suffuse and fill this very body with rapture and pleasure born of concentration. There's nothing of your entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure born of concentration. Okay, the mind basically becomes one with its object here. You're with the breath, there's a sense of rapture flowing, there's a sense of Ease that go through, that permit, and then you allows those to spread through the body. In the, in the analogy for the first jhana, you actually have someone that's working this moisture through the bath powder dough. In the analogy for the second jhana, you have a lake. There's no more any conscious object, any conscious agent making things happening. The rapture tends to just flow up on its own. After a while, the rapture becomes a little bit oppressive, and so you tune in to a more refined level of pleasure or of ease. With the fading of rapture, you remain equanimous, mindful, and alert, and sense pleasure with the body. You enter and remain in the third jhana, which the noble ones declare equanimous and mindful, he has a pleasant body. So the mind is equanimous, there's a sense of pleasure in the body. And you survey, suffuse the entire body with that sense of, of pleasure or of ease. Finally, in the fourth jhana, with the abandoning of pleasure and stress, this is page 13, first full paragraph. As with the early disappearance of joy and distress, you enter and remain in the fourth jhana, equanimity, purity of equanimity and mindfulness, neither pleasure nor pain. You sit permitting the body with a pure, bright awareness, so it's nothing of the entire body unpervaded by pure, bright awareness. The image here is a man wrapped from head to foot with a white cloth. So there's no part of the body to which the white cloth did not extend. Okay. okay, those are the four jhanas. And so the application of discernment here is one, <clears throat> the evaluation that's applied in the first jhana. And secondly, the realization that of those five factors of the first jhana, you have evaluation, you have directed thought, pleasure, rapture, and um, singleness of mind. It's the directed thought and evaluation and singleness that are the causes. That's, that's the karma of the first jhana. And then the pleasure and rapture are the results. So pleasure and rapture are not things that you do. You do the directed thought, you do the evaluation, you do make the effort to gather the mind into singleness. And then the pleasure and, ease, the pleasure and rapture will follow. Another way in which discernment is applied to the practice of jhana is not mentioned in, this, in, this, in these readings, but this passage where the Buddha says, you know, there's some people who exalt themselves and disparage over the fact that they have jhana and the other people don't. So that is a sign of a person of no integrity, and you're not going to gain any discernment based on your jhana. 
fact, you're actually destroying it. You've lost the jhana. All you're thinking about how great I am. I'm in jhana. Well, you're not in jhana anymore. Um, but the Buddha says the wise thing to do in that case is not to fashion any sense of self around it. That you just I'm there, there with these factors. There's no reason to be proud of the fact I'm here. There's no reason to exalt myself over other people or to disparage them. I've got to be stay right here with just these factors. So that that's one of the things from right view that has to be applied to the practice. And finally, there's this fifth factor, um, which is not explained very clearly in this this passage that we're just reading now. The monk has his theme of reflection well in hand, well attended to, well pondered, well tuned by means of discernment. But the analogy is actually a little bit more helpful. Just as if one person were to reflect on another, or a standing person were to reflect on a sitting person, or a sitting person were to reflect on a person lying down. In the same way, the monk has his theme of reflection well in hand, well attended to, well pondered, well tuned by means of discernment. Okay, the analogy here is basically explaining that you get the mind into jhana, and then you can pull out a little bit and observe what's going on. And it's this ability to pull out a little bit and not destroy the jhana that allows you to, allows you to use it as an object of contemplation. And then basically there are two ways in which you apply right view there. One is in each stage of jhana you see, okay, where are the five aggregates here in this jhana? Because the form of the body would be form. The feeling of pleasure or rapture would be the feeling. The perception that holds you with the breath would be the perception. The directed thought and evaluation would be the verbal fabrication around that. And then finally consciousness would be your awareness of all these things. So in the state of jhana, you've got all five aggregates. This allows you to contemplate them for the purpose of giving rise to discernment. There's another way to analyze the jhana, and that's as you go from one jhana to the next, you begin to see that certain things are falling away. And John Lee's analogy is of having a rock in which you have different metals, and you heat the rock to a certain, certain level, and I forgot which has the higher and the lower melting points, but say you have tin and silver and gold in there, their melting points are different. You heat it up to one point, the tin comes out. You heat it up a little higher, the silver comes out. You heat it up a little higher, the gold comes out. As you get the mind more and more concentrated, more and more refined, you begin to see that certain fabrications are dropped. And that allows you to see, okay, here's, here's another way in which this state of concentration is fabricated. That's how you apply discernment to the practice of concentration. The discernment that's gained from this, one, you see that there's a strategic need to feed the, strategic need to feed the mind with a non-sensual pleasure in order to go beyond sensual craving. As the Buddha said in one of his discourses, no matter how much you understand the drawbacks of sensuality, if you don't have an alternative source of pleasure, you're going to go back, because you don't see anything better. But if you do have this alternative source, then you have another place to go. That enables you to get more distance from your sensual craving. The second lesson you learn is the same lesson as in the developing and establishes mindfulness. As you master the fabrications going into the jhana, you learn more about these processes of fabrication and how they shape your experience. And finally, the jhana gives you a laboratory for seeing the aggregates and all the processes of becoming and the three fabrications in action. It provides you with still the stillness that makes them clear, but also enables you to see that this is as good as it gets. This is the best state you can fabricate for the mind. And yet it still has its problems. 
there's still a little bit of inconstancy here. There's still a little bit of stress. And so this gives rise to the desire. Maybe something, there's something better that would be totally unfabricated. And that increases your sensitivity to the, the dangers of fabrication. And again, makes the mind more inclined to want to go for something better. It's this last state, when you've been using the jhana itself as an object of contemplation, that the mind is, out, is able to move to the ultimate level of right view, where you apply to the three perceptions to all phenomena, including the state of jhana. Up to that point, you've been applying them simply to whatever is distracting you from your concentration. You know, sensual desire comes up, and you say, that's inconstant, there's stress there. The more refined the pleasure of the jhana, the more you're able to see that there is stress involved there. That sensitizes you to something you might not have noticed before. But when you can take care of those issues, then you see, okay, even the state of the concentration itself has some stress in it. The level of stress goes up, the level of stress goes down. When you can see that, then the question is, what am I doing to make it go up and down? Can I abandon that? And that's what enables the mind to let go of, of everything. And that's how these eight factors lead to the unfabricated. Any questions? <laughs> I've been dumping all this information on you. That you can't read, but. Yes. Mm-hmm. First, John, mm-hmm. uh, you did mention five there. This is all this won't get into the wars. But the, it's seemed to me that Vitaka Vichara is, is a way of working at unification. Mm-hmm. It's It's like the dough, you know, like mm-hmm. the soap dough. There's, that's that akakara is present there in the sense that you're developing it, mm-hmm. that you're, you're working at it, and then and then you got it. You can hold it. Your mind, and you should say, drop it. Mm-hmm. Then you drop it, mm-hmm. as opposed to uh, uh, vichara vitaka as thinking and scheming and I mean, attending and evaluating. Attending and yes, is it there or am I drifting? Yeah, that's what you. Yeah, that's because you know the the the, you, the bathman there actually has to be noticing how well he's doing it. You know, this part of the dough needs some some moisture. You provide mo- moisture for that part of the dough. This part needs more. This part needs to be needed. I mean, there has there has to be kind of a conscious shaping mm-hmm. because before the mind can settle down, be fully with it. I, I made an unfortunate analogy one time when I was teaching in Thailand. I said it's like a dog trying to lie down. You don't compare mind, people's minds to dogs. Um, but I said, you, know, you lie down, oops, there's a, there's a stone. So the dog gets up and scratches the stone away. Then it settles down, oops, there's a root. You get up and scratch that away. And there's an element, when you're settling down, you've got to adjust the mind and the object so that they're snug. And it requires a certain amount of discernment to say, okay, where are the, where, what's, what's the problem here? Mm-hmm. Ajahn, um, so... One question that I had got answered anyway, so the other question that I have is Ekagata um, that, that you're talking about here with uh, gathering mm-hmm. in one place, mm-hmm. uh, some, at some point uh, you also talk of it as singleness of preoccupation. Is that something different? Ekagata Ramana, the Ramana is the preoccupation part. I see. So Ekagata. But there also there is the uh, agga part, which is basically the the gathering point. The You're gathering. gathered around one object. I see. Um, and then 
One, one question that was uh, coming up was, why is, uh, why is there uh, uh, a, uh, uh, need for uh, rapture, uh, I mean, and pleasure to be uh, kind of divested, or what is, it, what is the word here? Um, because as long as the rapture is going, it's pretty strong, and sometimes it can divert your attention from watching the mind directly. If you want to observe the mind really clearly, this is one of the things I ne neglected to mention just now. They say that as you leave the first jhana going into the second jhana, you drop verbal fabrication. And when you leave the third jhana and you go into the fourth jhana, you drop bodily fabrication, i.e. the in and out breathing, breathing stops. Now it's not going to stop as long as this rapture is continuing to come. And if you're really going to observe the mind clearly, it's a lot easier not to have the distraction of the breath. I mean, once the breath is still, everything is still in the body, you can see the motions of the mind really clearly. I see. So it's because the pleasure is interfering with... It's interfering with seeing things clearly. Okay. And that's why it's considered a more refined state of concentration. But then... Uh, as you also pointed out, one can avoid sensuality only when one is uh, by, by dependence on that pleasure. Or something higher. Right. Oh, oh. okay, but, mm -hmm. but to an extent, at least to begin with, one needs to have, one needs and to use that as it's not the case that once you hit the fourth jhana, you will never go back to the second or the first. Sometimes you know, the mind, when the, if you're real, the body is really tired, that's what it needs. It's, it's kind of the energizing quality of the rapture. Mm. And you recognize that. So I've got to go back down, give the body some more energy now if I'm going to get, get everything into balance. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right at the end, Vipassana on the jhana itself, or mm -hmm. something about the jhana is the gateway to the third level of view. It's, well, it's Did the you point say where that? the mind is going to be ready for that level of right view, where everything just gets abandoned. And what, what, could, could you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, is it like Sariputta in MN 11, Like that, or the one in the passage here, you know, about the archer and the archer's apprentice, is taking things apart in terms of the five aggregates. Mm -hmm. And seeing, okay, that they're even the aggregates in jhana have an element of stress, and then you apply the perception that they're worth, worthy of dispassion. And it can be applying the perception of not-self, the perception, the perception of inconstancy, the perception of stress, and whatever variation is mentioned there. That's when the mind gets inclined to what, what would be totally unfabricated. There was a... Some, some, one use of jhana is you're observed, you come out, and your, your mind is so sharp you can do vipassana, whatever is coming along. But another one, a, a monk taught me, when you come out to, to do, this is a, like a Vasudhi Maga, Pawak kind of mm -hmm. thing, you want to examine that jhana, evaluate the factors, is you look in the, the vatu hadaya. He said, in the, the heart, actual physical heart. heart. Mm -hmm. That the, the, an afterglow of the jhanic state exists there for a while, mm -hmm. and you can sort of watch it and take it apart. It sounds like a nuclear reactor. <laughs> is that a canonic idea? Or is that a um, the Buddha talks about basically either as you're in the jhana or as you're moving from one to another. Uh -huh. That's when you gain the insight. 
Now it is possible. You, you leave jhana and you see the mind going for something and you have an insight into that and you drop it. But I mean, this kind of observation is a lot easier if you're doing a full body awareness jhana as opposed to a one-pointed. Hmm. I mean, you can actually be in the jhana because you've got the whole body as your range, as, as your framework, and then you can notice what's going on within that without destroying the jhana. This is one of the reasons why I think the Buddha is emphasizing this is right concentration. When you fill the whole body with a rapture and awareness, you've established this larger framework that then can be the basis for analysis, even while you're in the framework. But there's that, the other uh, perspective from experience is, with absorption, uh, there's this, uh, the, the mind is inside. It's fallen into the namita, and the mm-hmm. body's not there. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, the body is perceived as what is perceived. Mm-hmm. The phenomena. Well, try to get back into your full body. And have a sense that of being the centered. Jhana, well, that, that's the jhana, is being in the full body. Well, that's a different idea. Huh? It's a different idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm looking at the time, and we just have a few more minutes left, mm-hmm. and you promised to talk about stream entry and uh, yeah. mm-hmm. the, the deathless. Okay. So I, I'm, I'm uh, waiting breathless. <laughs> <laughs> Must okay. be in the fourth jhana if you breathe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. If, you, if you'll allow me to go on over time a little bit. Anybody who has to leave and go ahead and leave, and nobody will think the less of you for it. Okay, first, I'm, I'm on the relationship among the factors. Right concentration contains right mindfulness. Right mindfulness contains right effort. So you've got all of these things together here in those last three factors of the path. The other factors are needed for concentration. One, to be honest, and to be focused on the right goal. This is how they all come together. Because you needed the virtue to get the concentration honest enough so that you can actually apply discernment in a way that allows you to see where the defilements are. Um, and so there's no clear line between right concentration and right mindfulness. In fact, as I said, you can think about right effort being here and then right mindfulness includes that and then right concentration includes both. That's how they all work together. As for the middle way, it's not a question of having a middling state of neither pleasure nor pain, or as being just basically equanimous, it means using pleasure and pain as means to a higher end. In other words, you use pain as a topic of, that you analyze, that you try to comprehend. And then you use pleasure, the pleasure of the jhana, to give you the basis, the foundation you need in order to do that kind of analysis effectively. The goal is when you finally let go of even the path, um, that means you let go of all fabrication, and you ask, how do you do that? And you say, well, you have to get on the path and get to that point first, then, then the instructions begin to make sense. But what you open to is a, is a consciousness that is not involved with the six senses. It's called consciousness without surface, which is outside of the dimensions of the six sense media. The person who is, has achieved that is undefined, because we are defined, remember, by our desires. Our identity and our becoming are all around our desires. When somebody is undefined, you can't talk about them. Which is why when the Buddha is asked whether an arahant exists or doesn't exist or both or neither after death, you can't say anything because the arahant is no longer defined. It's a different state entirely. This kind of consciousness, however, is also first tasted as the deathless at stream entry. Um, There's an analogy in one of the suttas where one of the monks 
finally confesses to his fellow monks that he's, he, has, he, is a, he is a noble disciple, but he's not yet an arahant. He said it's like the difference between being at the edge of a well and seeing, oh yeah, there is water in the well, as opposed to being totally immersed. And the arahant jumps. <laughs> Whereas the stream writer has seen, oh yeah, there is a deathless element, but then retreats from it. Stream entry is defined as the fact where all the factors of the path finally come together into harmony. It erases three fetters. Identity view. In other words, having had this taste of the deathless, you know that you cannot be defined by the aggregates because there is this other dimension that can be experienced without any connection with the aggregates. The idea, it's just sometimes called the, the awakening of the Dharma eye. And the Dharma eye has expressed that all, is subject, that all that is a subject to origination is subject to passing away. Now that idea will arise spontaneously in the mind only when it sees something that is not subject to origination. In other words, you see the deathless. Okay. So your, your identity, you no longer identify yourself around the five aggregates. The other and second fetter that's of, um, cut is the fetter of uncertainty. You know that the Buddha is right, there really is a deathless. Nirvana really does exist and it can be attained through your efforts. It is timeless. It doesn't exist only in the time of the Buddha, but it's still here, present, available, here and now. And finally, you no longer grasp at precepts, habits, and practices. You realize that you didn't gain the, this experience of the deathless simply by following rules. There had to be insight. You had to use the ingenuity of your own discernment to get there. At the same time, you see how unskillful fabrications got in the way of gaining that insight. This is why your attitude toward the precepts happens is one that you continue to be virtuous, but you don't define yourself by that virtue. So to let go of this grasping, it says, okay, I'm just going to do whatever I want now. You realize, okay, I can't break the precepts, because that will just get in the way of further progress on the path. But you don't define yourself around the precepts, and you don't believe that simply by behaving yourself like a good little boy or a good little girl, you're going to get to nirvana. There's more than just the precepts, there's the element of discernment. Two other points I want to make before we stop. One is, one of the ways that, um, that you actually have attained stream entry is you realize that there is no other way to attain this goal. The path is the only path there. Which goes against our modern romantic ideas. Everybody who's had an, had an awakening experience, no matter how they did it, they all see the rightness of everybody else's path. This is question one way. Is there outside of this doctrine and discipline any contemplative of a Brahmin who teaches the true, genuine, and accurate Dharma like the Blessed One? And you discern, no, it's, there is no other way. And the reason of this is not because we're just becoming you know, Buddhist groupies. <laughs> it's because you realize that the noble Eightfold path is the only one that really brings complete comprehension of fabrication. When seeing how you shape your experience, it gives you the laboratory for how, to, how you do this and gives you more sensitivity to how you do this. And so it's the only path that can actually lead you to something that's unfabricated. Because without that comprehension, you're not going to get there. And finally, there's sometimes the question arises, you know, is, is the path sudden or gradual? There's an analogy from the Udana, which he says basically it's like the continental shelf off of India. It's gradual for a while and then there's a drop. And the reason for that is 
the reason there's a sudden drop is because the deathless is always there. It's not something that arises and passes away. It's in the background all the time. But your discernment has to be developed through practice, and that's the gradual side. It's only when your discernment is precise enough that you can actually have that, that sudden drop. Sometimes you see different analogies for the practice. There are basically two false ones that I've encountered, and one true one. The false one is that you are creating the unfabricated. You can't create the unfabricated. The second one is that the unfabricated is already there, all you have to do is relax into it. And the Eightfold Path is not just relaxing. As you can see, there's a lot of development, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. I think a more accurate one is a John Lee's analogy, which is that it's like, like trying to find fresh water in salt water. If you take, you know there's fresh water in there, but if you put it out and just let it sit, it's not going to separate out. You have to distill it. And the distilling here applies to the application of right effort. And that, that's when you're able to separate, okay, where is the unfabricated in the midst of all this fabrication? Questions? <laughs> I'm going to be a little provocative here. Um, when you say we cannot relax into um, the deathless, I guess that's a polemical point you're making, maybe against mm -hmm. the Mahayana tradition. Could you be more Not specific? Is, is, this Zen? is this Zen? Is this, which, which tradition are you kind of implicating? Um, you have it in all traditions. All the Mahayana traditions? Theravada has this as well. Uh -huh. There are Theravada teachers who will tell you, just relax into the oneness, you relax into the ground of being. And it doesn't really fit into what the Buddha taught. And when you look at the factors of the path, there's right effort that you really do have to work on Abandoning unskillful qualities. Sometimes you can abandon just by looking at them. Others, however, require work. And even in Zen, you've got the more active as opposed to the more passive, relaxed schools of Zen. So it's not specifically anti-Mahayana. It's kind of anti-relaxation. <laughs> Thank you. Tana Chan, uh, earlier you said uh, uh, if directly thought and evaluation our causes for first jhana. Mm -hmm. And then, um, so my question is, um, suppose you do some exercise and that brings about, you know, rapture, pleasure. Are they valid causes as well? Okay, um, I mean, you can have rapture and pleasure without the first jhana. I mean, here we're talking about but specifically the rapture and pleasure that come from secluding the mind from any sensual thoughts and just getting into a non-sensual topic. Because you know, it is possible to have jhana based on anger, it is possible to have jhana based on lust. I mean, you can think about anger at long periods of time, or lust long periods of time. And there can even be a sense of rapture that comes from that. But it's not right concentration. We're talking specifically about a state of mind that's focused on you know, a skillful object. Now sometimes doing the exercise before you sit down to meditate can get the mind in the right mood and get the body kind of balanced, so it's a lot easier to access this. But I wouldn't say that you're actually getting into the jhana necessarily while you're doing, while you're doing the exercise. So it could be a way to prime the mind to right. do right. the direct yeah. development, but not in itself the same sort not of experience. I mean, it's possible to get into jhana while you're moving. 
yoga or something like that. That could happen. Mahasi's terminology is that is vipassana kanaka samadhi. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it makes it makes sense now when you put it in that context. Mm-hmm. I see, I see your perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ajahn, um, one question is: You talked about uh, using the three perceptions mm-hmm. in the kind of last stage or something. I've seen. Uh, some other places where people talk about uh, using the asava model, the three, uh, what is the word, fermentations, that's how you... Fermentations, tr- affluence. Aff- affluence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, are they two related, or are they the same? Well, apparently it's, the, it's only the arahant who can get through all the affluence. Yeah, there is that, there's one sutra where it basically says the arahant's path has ten factors. What I taught you is the path to stream entry. There's two more. Okay. And the two more factors are right knowledge and right release. And part of that right knowledge would have to do with the asavas. Yeah. I see. So the asavas are not really included in the first four, eight, four, eight, sorry, the noble eight, they're, four they're path. Not they're not mentioned. Okay. So they're, they're only for, the, uh, for those who have gotten to the third stage and are about to go to the arahanthood. I would think so. Okay. Then the, can you talk a little bit more about Michha Samadhi or wrong, wrong concentration? Wrong concentration. You gave a bunch of examples on uh, jhana based on lust and jhana mm. based on all that. But uh, I think I read somewhere by Ajahn Lee about jhana that is overly exclusive and uh, jhana. Yeah, he he points out two states that are that he would he'd identify as wrong concentration. Uh-huh. One is the one that he calls delusion concentration, right. which a lot of us have experienced many times. That you're sitting there and basically what you're doing is you're, you're, you've, you've lost the breath and you've gone for the pleasure. It feels really nice and very quiet, but you come out and you're not really sure, wait, wait a minute, what was I focused on just now? And it's not, it's not very mindful, not very clear. Now the way around that is, as soon as the pleasure comes up, you've got to develop full body awareness and work on the energies in the body. Um, the other one is the state they call state of non-perception, where you totally blank out the body and you're just focused on basically your whatever comes up in the mind. Say, I'm not going to focus there. I'm not going to focus there. I'm not going to focus there. And bang, you go down, and you come out and. If you had in mind at any point what time you wanted to come out of concentration, you come out at that time. I didn't understand that one at all. I'm completely lost with this one. Can you re- repeat okay, this you one? Okay, say, I don't want to focus on anything at all. So whatever it comes to the mind, say, drop it, drop it, drop it, drop it, drop it, drop it. And if I, if I at the point mind, mind goes down, you lose all sense of the body, you lose all sense of where you are. Uh-huh. And then you come out. And you could have sat there for two hours and it feels like a very short period of time. Is it, is it uh, so j- just a question, is, is there stress in there? At that point you don't, you can't, you can't analyze anything. Is that I hit it one time, and then, you know, with the John Fung, the rule is if you, you don't talk about anything unless you hit it a couple times. So after I hit it a couple times, I mentioned it to him, and his first question was, did you like it? Mm-hmm. And my first response was no, when I first came out I felt kind of groggy. 
But I discovered I actually was addicted to it, and I started just going back and back and back. And he said, you know, as long as you understand that this is not nirvana, you're okay. And then he told me about one time he used that the state. He was going to go in to have his kidneys removed, or one of his kidneys removed. And he didn't trust the anesthesiologist. You know, you hear those stories about people waking up in the middle of surgery, you know, and, and the anesthesia is not working. And so he says, well, I'll just put myself into this. And as I said earlier, if you have a, if you time it ahead of time, you know, I want to come out at five o'clock, bang, you're out at five o'clock. There's kind of an internal timer. And so he figured out, okay, the surgery should be done at XX time, so I'll come out then. He comes out, he's actually on the gurney, they're wheeling him back into the room because they had sewed him up wrong. <laughs> so, I had to go back down. So, that, that, that's one of the uses. <laughs> it can be. And if you're going to be sitting up all night in meditation, it's a good skill to have under your... <laughs> At least to get through the mind. But of course, you don't gain any discernment from it. You're just out and then back in. And so John, John Lee lists that as wrong concentration. Question over here. This is kind of an indirect question, but uh, uh, since you're an esteemed Pali scholar, I'd like to get your view on the Visuddhimagga. Mm-hmm. There have been Western scholars who have raised critical remarks about some of the, the content, and I was curious what you thought. My own perception of this is that Jhana, as it's explained in the Vasudhimaga, is not the Jhana explained in the canon. They're talking about something else entirely. In the, in the Vasudhimaga, the paradigm for Jhana is the Kasinas. And that practice is mentioned only tangentially in the, in the Pali canon. Whereas in the, in the Vasudhimaga, it's brought up center stage. And then all the other types of meditation are forced into that mold, including breath meditation. And for him, the later stages of breath meditation just get dropped entirely. You get the mind to the state where the mind is still, you get the, you get the nimitta, you drop the breath and you go for the nimitta. And so all the stages of breath meditation that are described, the 16 stages just kind of get dropped. And again, in the canon it's pretty obvious that when the Buddha is talking about giving these analogies for full body awareness and full body experience of pleasure and rapture, that does not correspond to what's being described in the Vasudhimaga. I mean, there's some people who say, well, body in that context means just the full body of your range of your awareness. But when the Buddha says this very body, he's talking about this physical body. And if it was important not to have an experience of the body, why would he use that as an analogy? Either he's very sloppy or he's devious. <laughs> Which I don't, I don't think the Buddha was that kind of teacher. So as far as, you know, when you, when you, I personally have not seen the Visuddhimagga that useful. Especially Thank you very much. There are some analogies and stories, but in terms of its description of concentration practice, I have known people who've done Visuddhimagga practice, as it's described in the Visuddhimagga, and they've had some very bad, bad results. So in the, in the forest tradition, people are, are warned off, say, staring at candles or staring at colors. Because it can do very strange things to your mind. It can be dangerous. Well, it can be dangerous anywhere. I knew this one guy, and he was doing it in the safety of his hut, and he went blind. 
you know, the people who, you know, when the whole thing about Gesina practice is that you lose the distinction between inside and outside. And that can be very dangerous. You start thinking things and you think that you said them. Or you say things and think that you didn't say them because you get confused as to what's internal and what's external. Mm-hmm. That comes up in the West. Certain people, I've friends, people have written books about it. They, uh, they go on a retreat, they get close to concentration, and, and the next day they're in the psych ward. Mm-hmm. And the teachers don't know what to do about it. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a propensity of some people, but not inherent in the practice. I mean, that's a hypothesis. Mm-hmm. I mean, some, some practices tend to push people in that direction more than others. But you've also got, as you said, some people have pretensities to just kind of, they don't have a good kind of governor inside their mind to let them know, okay, this is getting kind of weird, I better stop. <laughs> One of my favorite stories, I have a student, a Singaporean monk, who was up in the northern forests of Thailand, and he was doing very concentrated, intense practice, you know, sleeping very little and meditating, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking for days on end. And there was one afternoon he was feeling a little tired and he leaned back against his hut and this herd of elephants came along. And as he was watching the elephants, one of the elephants turned to him and started talking to him. And fortunately he realized, I'm going crazy. (laughs) I better search out somebody else and get out of the state of mind. That's a good governor. Okay. Shall we end with that story? (laughs) Okay, thank you for your attention. I hope this has been helpful.